No, 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 no. What year is it? The year of X, right? Everybody got that? So a little pop quiz. Now, if you're a guest of ours, you say, I thought it was 2013. Well, it is, but to our church, it is the year of X. This marks our 10th anniversary as a church. And if you missed last week, we told you last week, we felt like the best way we could spend our 10th year together as a church is to spend it with Jesus. And so every Sunday, we're going to explore a passage from one of four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're known as four Gospels. Last week, we heard the, from Jesus through the very first sermon that he ever preached. And so last week, we kind of looked at the man and his message. And we said he came preaching one message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Today, we're not going to look at his message. Today, we're going to look at his ministry and we're going to look at his mission. So I want to begin by getting you to kind of think about something with me as you think about the incredible life of this incredible man. If I told you that God was going to send his son to this planet, and if I told you that this son would only live about 33 years, and if I told you that only about three years of those 33 years would we really hear anything from him and his life would be measured by only three years. My question is, what do you think he would do with those three years? Or let me make it personal. Let's suppose from the day that you were born, you knew you would only live 33 years. And yet, you knew that your life would be measured by only the last three years that you lived. Here's my question to you. What would you do with your life? Now, I don't think anybody would dispute the claim that Jesus did more and Jesus accomplished more in those three years than any other human being has ever accomplished in a full life. Jesus did more in three years than any of us would ever do in a hundred years. Jesus did more in those three years than any nation or any kingdom has ever done in history. H.G. Wells, the famous uh, author and also one of the top historians of the 20th century, said this about Jesus, and I'm quoting. He said, more than 1,900 years later, a historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture entering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first among all who have ever lived. That was what a man said who wasn't even a Christian, who didn't even believe in Jesus, who didn't even follow him. He said, there's never been a man that had the impact and the influence and left behind what this man left behind. Someone as well said, you can gauge the size of a ship that is passed out of sight by the huge wake that it leaves behind. Well, by any measure, Jesus left the largest wake behind him of any man who ever lived. And how did it all begin? It began with a journey, with a journey that some men decided about 2,000 years ago they would take with this soon-to-become world-famous carpenter from Nazareth. 
And the story that we're going to read in just a moment reveals today the two things that Jesus decided to do in those three years. This is what blows my mind about Jesus. If you told me I was only going to live 33 years, and if you told me that my life would be measured by only the last three years of, those, of, those, of, of my life, I would probably have five pages of things I think I want to get done in those three years. Jesus, on the other hand, said, I'm only going to do two things. And what he did in those two years made such a difference that we're meeting in this building today 2,000 years later. And what he did is the basis of a new little short series we're going to start today called Missing Persons. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but did you know that we have a missing persons epidemic in this country? This fascinated me. Reports of people who have gone missing have increased sixfold in the past 25 years. In the hour that it will take us to have this worship service, in the hour that it will take us this morning, 100 Americans are going to go missing. That's adults and children. That is 2,400 people who go missing every day. That is 900,000 people a year. A couple of weeks ago, I, I was watching the movie Lincoln, and I normally don't advertise movies, but if you haven't seen it, you ought to go see it. It's a great movie. And I was watching the movie Lincoln, and my phone buzzed, and I looked at it. It was an Amber Alert. And, and, and if, I don't know if you know what Amber stands for or not. It stands for America's Missing Broadcasting Emergency Response. And it was named for a little girl named Amber, a nine-year-old child who you may remember was abducted and murdered in Texas. And every now and then on your TV or the radio or whatever, you'll hear about an Amber Alert. And that simply lets you know there's another child that's gone miss missing. Well, amazingly, when you study the last three years of the life of Jesus, what you find is his entire life revolved around missing persons. It all revolved around missing people. You say, well, what do you mean by missing people? All right, let me tell you what I mean by missing person. Every person that is far from God is a missing person. Every person that is far from God is a missing person to God. There is an amber alert on every empty chair in this building. There is an amber alert. Every empty chair represents a missing person that God wants us to find. And here's what blows my mind. When you read the Gospels and you study about the three years that Jesus used to make an impact on this earth, he built his entire life around doing two simple things. Finding missing persons and making committed disciples. That's all he did for three years. He said, I'm going to go out and look for missing people, and I'm going to make committed disciples. Now, you think about that. Of all the things that he could have done in three years, write books, make money, start a business, go to school, get an education, get married, have kids, kids build, build a career that would last long after he's gone, he gave, gave his life to two simple things. I'm going to find missing persons. I'm going to make committed disciples. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Get this down. What he gave his life to, he wants us to give our life to. And let me tell you why that's so important. Here's the key takeaway. When you make the purpose of his life, the purpose of your life, you'll find the real purpose of all of life. 
When you make the purpose of his life, the purpose of your life, you'll find the real purpose of all of life. And that purpose is found in the process of becoming a follower of Jesus. And you can sum up everything that Jesus wants you to do in two words. I want you to write down these two words, all right? You want to know what Jesus wants you to do. Once you come to Jesus and you know Jesus and you trust Jesus and you want to you want to really be one of his disciples, he says, okay, I, I can sum up everything I want you to do in two words. Here's those two words. Follow me. That's it. Follow me. Those two words are the foundation of living a purpose-filled life that will have eternal consequences. You know, life is a journey. That's one of the things you learn as you get older. You look back and you realize life is a journey. And someone has said that the journey of a thousand miles begins with what? First step. The journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. So I want you, if you brought a copy of God's Word this morning, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 5. Because what we're going to do today is we're going to read how the first followers of Jesus became the first followers of Jesus. We're going to learn how this journey begins. But now, as I share this story with you, I want you to keep something in mind. And this is going to be true, by the way. Every time we read anything out of the Gospels, don't ever forget what I'm about to tell you. You're not just reading about them. You're reading about you. Because you are in every story in the gospel. Somewhere, somehow, Jesus is just not talking about something he did 2,000 years ago. He's talking about something he wants to do today. So the steps that they took when they decided to become a follower of Jesus are the same steps that we're going to take if you want to get on the greatest journey of all, which I believe is following Jesus. Jesus. Following Jesus is a journey that will lead you right into a God-filled eternity. So what are the steps that you need to take if you're going to become a follower of Jesus? Well, there are five steps, and they're all very short. They're very simple. I'm going to share them with you this morning. Now, the first step is very, very simple. Here it is. You have to hear the Word of God. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, if you want to get in on life's greatest journey, if you want to make your life count, number one, you've got to hear the Word of God. Now, we're in Luke chapter 5, verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the gospel writer said that the public ministry of Jesus involved three things. You'll read this in the gospel. Jesus would go, he always went around the countryside doing three things. He was preaching, he was teaching, and he was healing. So for three years, Jesus went all over that country teaching what was right, preaching what was true, and healing what was wrong. So this story begins with Jesus teaching and, and the Word of God and people hearing the Word of God. Now, why does the story begin that way? Because every journey that really is going to get where it needs to go with God always begins with hearing the Word of God. Now, I want you to understand something. When the Bible says that Jesus was teaching from the Bible, He really wasn't teaching from the Bible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes we get this idea that, that Jesus was out there and He had a Bible like I have and He was teaching from the Bible. He wasn't because back in His day, there was no Bible, at least not at, at we, as we know it. So I want you to get this in your mind. When Jesus was out there teaching the crowds, he wasn't teaching from a book. He was teaching from his heart. And that phrase, the Word of God, could also be translated the Word from God. Because here's what I want you to understand. Every time that Jesus opened his mouth, you were hearing the Word of God. Every time. He didn't need a Bible. 
He didn't need a book. I need a book. If I'm going to preach the Word of God, I've got to have the Word of God. Jesus did not need the Word of God. And you say, well, why didn't he need the Word of God? Because he was the God of the Word. Every time, listen, every time Jesus opened his mouth, it was the Word of God because he was the God of the Word. That's not what I say. As a matter of fact, John, who's in this story, you're going to see about him in a moment, he would later write this, in the beginning was the Word. He was talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So every time Jesus opened his mouth, he was teaching the Word. Well, that raises a question. What was he teaching? What, what, what was he telling this crowd? What, what, what was his lesson about? Well, he was teaching the same thing that I taught you that he began to, uh, preaching last week. Because before this story begins in Luke chapter 5, Luke records this back up in Luke chapter 4. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So I know what Jesus was teaching that, that beautiful sunny day there on that, on that Galilean shore. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was telling them, I've got good news for you. Light has come to the spiritually dark. Sight has come to the spiritually blind. Freedom has come to the spiritually captive. So he's standing on the shore and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Well, evidently, some people couldn't hear him. There probably were some people back there saying, hey, I can't hear you. Could you speak up? So he does a really brilliant thing to make sure that everybody could hear him. And in order to create some space between himself and the crowd, he does a very wise thing. We're in verse 2. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, Jesus is talking to this crowd. There are probably thousands of people out there. Not everybody can hear him. So he decides to get into this boat, and he pushes it offshore just a very short distance. Now, I, I, I asked myself the question, well, why did he do that? Now, let me tell you how brilliant Jesus was. He was using the water to magnify his voice so that everybody could hear him. If you've ever been out on the lake, you know how amazing this is. You can try this sometime out on Lake Lanier. You can be on one side of the lake. Somebody else can be on the other side of the lake, and yet you can hear them talk to you almost as if they're right in your ear. You know why that is? Because sound travels seven times faster and goes seven times farther over water than it does over land. They say, you pay me to teach you things like this. That's why I know things like this. Now, here's what you may be asking. How did Jesus know that? How did Jesus know that sound would travel seven times faster and seven times farther over water than it does over land? Well, the short answer to that is because he made the land and he made the water, but that's a whole other sermon, okay? Now, the crowd is hanging on every word. And what I want you to get is this. Peter is hanging on every word. Do you know why? He doesn't have a choice. He's a captive audience. He's in the boat. So he's sitting there listening to everything that Jesus is teaching. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Because Jesus knows the first step to becoming a follower of his is to hear the word of God. That's step one. Now here's step two. Step two is trust the Son of God. You hear the word of God. Step two is you trust the Son of God. Verse four. And when he had finished speaking, he gets through his, his lessons over. Now listen to what he does. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. Now let me tell you something. 
The last thing that Peter wanted to hear Jesus say to him was, let's go fishing. Now, let me tell you why. Peter, keep this in mind, he is a professional fisherman. He, he does this for a living. And so he's looking at Jesus and he thinks to himself, you know, that's exactly what I would expect a carpenter to say. You know, let, let's go fishing. Because remember what Peter and his buddies were doing in that boat when Jesus got into it? Verse 2 says, they were washing their nets. Now, why is that such, why, what, what does that mean? Whenever a fisherman was washing his net, that meant the day was done. He had punched his clock. They had pulled their nets in. They'd come into shore. They were cleaning their nets so that they don't get damaged. They'd been out fishing all night. I mean, it's time now to go to McDonald's, say, I'll have a number one supersize that, go home, watch a little ESPN, hit the sack, get ready for the next day, right? That's why when Jesus said, hey, let's go out and let's go fishing, Peter at first protests. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. Now, I got to give Peter some slack here. Peter was exhausted. He and his partners had fished all night, and they hadn't caught one thing. Now, you may raise a question. Well, I don't understand. Why were they fishing at night? Simple answer. The fish in the Sea of Galilee feed at night. And in the daytime, they hide under rocks. And what's even worse is they don't really go out into the deep. They congregate around the streams and the springs at the edge of the sea close to shore, not in the deep. See, a fish can't see a net at night, right? But he can see the net in the daytime and he can avoid it. So Peter sees this request and he thinks, this is just foolish for two reasons. First of all, Lord, it's the wrong time. The best time to fish is during the night and, 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 and during the early morning, not in the middle of the day. And secondly, it's the wrong place. Every fisherman knows the best, the, the best place to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee is along the shore, not in the deep water. And so Peter's sitting there thinking, this is unbelievable. Do you understand if I do what you're telling me to do, go out here in broad daylight in the middle of the sea, you're asking me to do that, I'm going to be the laughingstock of this community. That nobody will ever, ever trust me again as a fisherman because that's the last thing that you would do. So the conversation probably went something like this. Jesus, I really love you a lot. And you're a cool guy. I'm the fisherman. Okay? You're the carpenter. I know rods and reels. You know hammers and nails. And I don't mean to be ugly. You don't know nothing about fishing. And Jesus probably looked at him and said, you know, from the look of your empty net, neither do you. So, you need to understand, now you need to understand this. Fishing back in those days was back-breaking work. Because let me tell you what those fishermen would do. It wasn't, it wasn't rods and reels, it was a net. They would go out into the water. They would lay a great net in a semicircle. That would encompass a radius of about 100 feet. They would draw that net in hand over hand over hand. And they'd repeat the procedure again and again and again. So Jesus is asking a man who hasn't slept all night, <clears throat> hasn't caught one thing, just finished washing his net of the dirt and the debris and the trash and the garbage that simply tangles the net. He's looking at this man and he says, look, I want you to beach the boat. I want you to load a thousand pounds of wet nets into the boat. I want you to row out into the deep water in broad daylight and I want you to go catch fish that you and I both know aren't even there. Now, Peter 
probably, when he tried to reason with Jesus, when he basically, he was being nice. He was trying to send a nice way. Lord, we, we've worked all night, and, and, and that's the best time, and we went to the best place, and that didn't work. He probably expect Jesus to say something like this. Peter, forgive me for being so insensitive. Just, just forget the whole thing. Let's just pretend this conversation didn't happen. But here's what happened. Peter looks at Jesus and says, Lord, we fished all night, and we haven't caught a thing. And Jesus just folded his arms and just looked at him. And just smiled and just waited. Now, if you're a husband, you've seen that look many times, right? I mean, I, I, let me tell you, I, I've, had, I've had a conversation like this so many times with Teresa, I can't even count them. Teresa, I think that's a bad idea. I really don't want to go right now. I'd really rather go another time. Can we do this later? She doesn't say a word. She just folds her arms, smiles. And waits. And you know what I do? I say, you know what? On second thought, I think that's a great idea. Let's, let's, let's go right now. So Simon, he says, look what he says in verse 5. We've worked all night, hadn't worked out, but, now watch this. This is huge. Don't miss this. At your word. That's all I got to go on. At your word, I will let down the nets. Now, I want to tell you something. You want to talk about growing your faith this morning? Listen to what I'm going to tell you. Don't miss the importance of what he said and what he did because what you're looking at is the first example of faith in the New Testament. First time anybody ever exercises faith because you know what faith is? Faith is simply taking Jesus at his word and trusting what he says. In effect, here's what Peter said to Jesus. He says, Jesus, you know, I wouldn't do this for just anybody. But since I've heard you teach and since I've seen some of the work that you do, and oh, by the way, back up in chapter, chapter 4, you'll read that Jesus had been to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law of a fever, so Peter owed him one. Okay, you need to understand that. He says, okay, because of what you said, because of what I've already seen, I will do what you ask. Because God honors faith, and faith is simply trusting Jesus and doing what he asks you to do. Listen. It is doing what he asks you to do in spite of the feelings within you, the circumstances around you, and the consequences before you. Lord, we've worked all night. We went at the right time. We went to the right place. We're professional fishermen. We haven't caught one thing, but just because you said so, we're going to do it. Lord, I don't know if you've seen my bank account lately. I can't afford to tithe. But because you say tithe, I'll tithe. Lord, I don't see any way this marriage is going to work out. I'm telling you right now, it just can't make it. But because you say to hang in there, Lord, I'm going to hang in there. At your word, I will let this net down. It is the second step. Listen, it is this second step of trusting the Son of God that makes the first step of hearing the Word of God come to life. Because let me tell you this, if you come to this church every Sunday and all you do is hear the Word of God, but you never trust the Son of God, your hearing won't make any difference. You understand that? Well, mate, you're wasting your time. I'm wasting mine. So Peter's taken the second step of what's going to be this lifelong journey, but now he's about to experience, I think, the greatest thrill of all. He's now about to take the third step because watch what happens. When you hear the Word of God and you trust the Son of God, you experience the grace of God. Now watch this. Notice exactly what Jesus said to Peter in verse 4. 
put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this is important. Some of you don't even understand what Jesus just said there. Jesus didn't just look at Peter and say, let's go fishing. Because when you go fishing, all you're going is to look for fish. That's what fishing is. He didn't say, let's go fishing. He said, let's go catch fish. Now, I will tell you something. I hate fishing. I hate it with a passion. I don't understand people that like it. I think they've lost their ever-loving mind. I do. So if you ever ask me to go fishing, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I would rather, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'd rather watch a soap opera that's been on for 20 years than go fishing. I'm just being honest with you. Now you tell me let's go catch fish and you guarantee me we'll catch. That's a different matter. Jesus said, let's go catch fish. Well, look what happens next. And when they had done this, verse 5, uh, verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats and so that they began to sink. Now listen, well, this is so cool. It's one thing to know how to fish. It's another thing to know where to fish, right? Now, you talk about a catch. These boats, this is a picture of a boat that was dug up several, about, about 30 or 40 years ago. They found this boat. Uh, it was on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. It's exactly the kind of boat that they would have used back then. This, it, it, the boats, was, they were about seven and a half feet wide, and they were about 27 feet long. Now, I want you to imagine two boats like that being so filled with fish that they both began to sink. They both are going under the water. I mean, they were filled with tons of fish. It was the greatest catch in the history of the Sea of Galilee. Never before and never since has anybody ever caught that many fish. And it's the first time in history that a fisherman ever came home and told the truth. I mean, can you imagine the can you imagine the conversation that took place when G, when Peter got back home? Yes, honey, I really did catch that many. And they really were that big. If you don't believe me, ask Jesus. He was there. He saw the whole thing. Now, put yourself in Peter's sandals. You're a fisherman. This is what you do for a living. Would you have been pumped? I mean, would you have been excited? Can you imagine what he was thinking? Can you imagine what he wanted to say to Jesus? Jesus. Why don't you and I go into business together? Right? I mean, I know how to fish. You know where to fish. And you know what? I've got this vision. We, we, we could open up restaurants all over Israel. We could call them, call them something creative like Long John Savior. <laughs> or Jesus' Crab Shack. You know, something like that. And then the thought hit him. Why would Jesus, a poor carpenter who didn't own a home, had no money of his own, what is this dude doing traveling the countryside preaching and teaching and healing and doing it for nothing? As a matter of fact, he could have gotten into somebody else's boat. Why did he get into my boat? Why, why, why did he give me this catch? And all of a sudden, it hits Peter like a ton of fish. Jesus doesn't care about fish. He doesn't care about business. He doesn't care about money. He cares about me. He doesn't care about prosperity. He cares about people. 
missing people like me. And this is why Peter responds this way, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Now watch this. In the beginning, Peter called him master, but now he calls him Lord. Now I don't know exactly what that means, but I know one thing. Peter either knew at that moment that this man was God or he knew at the very least somehow he was in the presence of God and he gets it right. Immediately he recognizes there's something different about you. There's something higher about you. There's something better about you. Lord, I am a sinner. And by the way, it's the first time that phrase sinner or sinful man is found in the gospel because you know what a sinner is? A sinner is just a missing person. And Jesus agreed with Peter. No argument. You know what, Peter? You're right. You are a sinful man, but look what Jesus does. This is incredible. Peter, you're asking me to leave you. Buddy, I'm not only not going to leave you, I want you to go with me. I want you to follow me. I want your life to become a part of my life. Look what he says in verse 10. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid from now on you will be catching men. Seven times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will say these words, do not be afraid. I want to tell you something. What Jesus said to Peter is what Jesus says to us. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't care how bad you've blown it. You have nothing to fear from me. Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't come to bring fear. He came to bring forgiveness. He didn't come to bring guilt. He came to bring grace. And it's amazing to me that Peter wanted to send the Lord away, that Jesus wanted to draw Peter closer. Listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, some of you out there need to hear this right now. At the point that you feel you are most far from God is the point that God wants to be the most near to you. And when you meet Jesus and you recognize who he is and you realize who you are and you make up your mind, I'm going to bring who I am and what I am to who you are, he will not reject you with a closed fist. He'll receive you with open arms. And one of the things that I love about being a Jesus follower is every day all over again when I get up in the morning, I experience the grace of God all over again. Now watch this. You hear the word of God, you trust the Son of God, you experience the grace of God, and when you do that, it just naturally leads to the fourth step, you want to follow the will of God. Verse 10, from now on, you'll be catching men. Now that phrase, catch men, is a combination of two great Greek words, very interesting. One word means to catch, and the other word means alive. And so what he really says is, you're going to catch alive. And here's what he was saying. He was saying, Peter, what you are doing for a living is not what you're going to do with your life. You see, Peter, what you've been doing for a living is catching fish. What I want you to do for a life is to catch people. You have spent your life catching fish for the purpose of killing them. From now on, you're going to spend the rest of your life catching people in order to save them. Now, don't miss this. What Jesus was telling Peter he wanted to do was the very same thing he had just done with Peter. He said, look, Jesus, Jesus says, Peter, I want you to go catch people the way I just caught you. I want you to go. I caught you so you'll catch others. I found you so you'll find others. And from now on, 
Peter's life was going to be built around two things. Finding missing persons and making committed disciples. Now here's where we mess up. Here's where we make a big mistake. We think, well, that was Peter. No, that's not just Peter. That's us. That's what Jesus is saying to every one of you in this room who claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, I want you to make the passion and the goal of your life for the rest of your life to find missing people and to make committed disciples. That was my will for Peter. That was my will for the first disciples. And that is my will for you. It's my will for every follower of Jesus Christ. And it's, the, it's my will for this church because every empty chair in this room represents a missing person. And our job and our mission is to go find them and to go tell them that they can become followers of Jesus. And then step five closes the circle. We'll wrap it up. Step five, you surrender to the call of God. Now watch this, verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, this, this, this never ceases to amaze me. And when they brought their boats to land, they left, what's that word? Everything. They left everything. And followed him. Now, I, I get it. I understand. Whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, let's just, let's just tell it like it is. That one will make you swallow hard. Right? I mean, those four men just signed their names to a blank piece of paper that day and Jesus hadn't even written the contract. And this is what I want to close with. And I want to say this to every one of you who have been with me for a long time, especially those of you who have been your pastor 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I want every one of you to listen to what I'm about to tell you as your pastor. Christianity is more than just accepting Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection for your sins so you can go to heaven when you die. It's more than that. It is so you can live out his purpose in this life and make your life count. Not just blowing your life on silver and stuff, but being willing as one formerly missing person to go out and find other missing persons and being willing to say, Lord, if you will help me, I want to catch other people the way you caught me. I want to find other people the way you found me. I want to bring other people in the way you brought me in. Now, you say, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Pretty costly, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. When my wife and I stepped out in faith and started this church 10 years ago, we stepped out knowing it could very well cost us a great deal financially. I, I realized it could cost me a nationwide television ministry that I had spent 10 years of my life building. I realized if I started and we flopped, which you never know, it could cost me everything I'd built on my reputation as a pastor and as a preacher. And a logical person would have said, well, then why did you do it? And I'm not a hero. I just did what God told me to do. I mean, he's the hero. But you say, well, well why, would you, why would you take the risk? Let me tell you why. When you decide to do what these disciples did, and you decide to leave everything and follow Jesus, listen to this. When you decide to follow Jesus... He takes responsibility for the journey. When you decide to follow Jesus, he takes responsibility for the journey. <laughs> I'll, I'll wrap up by telling you this. You know, I hear people, and I've said this before, I hear people say this all the time. You better give your life to Jesus. You might die. Hey, you better give your life to Jesus. You might live. 
because we need to follow Jesus. Not because he needs us. We need to follow Jesus because we need him. To take our life from the monotonous to the momentous. To say to us the way he said to Peter. Yeah, Peter, you can stay in that boat. And you can catch fish. And you make a few dollars. And you can die and have no impact at all. Or you can get out of that boat. You can follow me. And see what I can do with a life totally committed to me. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and with eyes closed. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you the opportunity to know him personally. And I just want to say to you the same thing that Peter said to